Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and today I'm very happy to say... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and today I'm very happy to say that we have Cy Hirsch on the phone, and we'll be talking about his terrific memoir, Reporter. I should say that Cy played an interesting role in my life, though he didn't know it. I read his book, Me Lie 4, while I think I was in detention, Cy, in my high school library in 1978, because I wasn't a very good boy. And uh, it sparked a kind of lifelong interest in history, and I eventually became a historian, believe it or not. And I even wrote a book about Me Lie. So there you have it, the power of good reporting. So welcome to the show, Cy. I'm glad to be here. Great. And by the way, uh, you're not the first story like that I've heard. I bet not. Yeah, no. I no, ch- I ch- yeah. Was, the most touchy one came from somebody who was uh, at West Point. Oh, really? Uh, first or second year. And when he said, I, I can't be in an army that does this. And he, right. He, yeah, he, sure. And they, but they, what they did is he gave up his commission and he served, uh, he had to serve three years as a medic in uh, Vietnam, or wow. two years as a medic. Wow. Yeah, they punished him for quitting. Yeah. I mean, well, that's okay. Yeah. He, did, he did something useful. He did um, do something useful. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes, and I know your book. Yeah, course, so anyway, so um, pardon me for saying this, but uh, and this is just so the listeners know what we're doing. You're kind of a famous guy, and pretty much everybody, uh, at least in the chattering classes, kind of knows who you are. Um, but I don't think they know much about you before you broke the Mila story in 1969. So in the interview, I think that we're going to do is concentrate on the Cy Hirsch before 1969, if that's okay. And I'm really interested in how you became a reporter and uh, a really, uh, if you don't mind these words, tenacious, independent-minded one. So I want to begin with the word reporter. You call your book reporter, not journalist or investigative reporter. So why did you call the book reporter? Well, I think every reporter is an investigative reporter. I mean, unfortunately, they're not. But I think, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's, uh, what drives me crazy is, is um, we're, we're right now we're in this sort of a very funny period of our journalism where there's no middle ground anymore. You're either for Trump or you're against Trump, and the, the media's gone all in on it. There's no, there's no one newspaper one can look to for an objective assessment of what's going on. You either hate Trump or you like Trump, and so it drives the way it works. And but, but my thought, or even before this particular issue, which is ex- exasperated, something that's been going on for a long time, because the newspaper business doesn't have the funds it used to have. There's not enough money. There's not enough advertising to do stories. So sometimes you end up with a reporter thinking it's okay to describe a conflict and you know between A and B and A says this and B says that and what I always thought you should do is is maybe if you have to write a story about the conflict and then try and figure out who's right and who's wrong that's our job to go beyond just the mere facts of so and so sues so and so stuff then try and figure out if there's a, you know particularly if there's an issue involving uh, not personal stuff but a broader issue involved suing over water treatment or something like that you know are the water levels safe enough and that's the kind of stuff that you just get into and it doesn't happen enough. I mean, we still have, even the Flint water situation, I keep on hearing contradictory things about how bad the water is. And I know that sounds silly, but it's not. It's, it's what our business is, is designed to do, take time and do stories. But 
you see today is, uh, you know, it's also harder for the, when I worked at the New York Times in the heyday in the 70s, Watergate and Vietnam, sort of a free hand in that newspaper, which, which was a very, I was actually working for the New Yorker in 71 and 72 and left it to go to the Times to write about Vietnam from Washington. Uh, because the Times had such a reputation as a straight paper. I mean, way straight laced. And that if I wrote a story critical of the war from Washington, it would be believed. Um, if I, if I was critical of Kissinger, it would be believed. And now, uh, um, what you have is, uh, uh, everybody living and dining off the tweet. Trump is, is high volume. Trump, people want to read about Trump. People hate him. People like him, but they want to read about him and they want to hear about him. So the cable news shows are all Trump all the time, all tweets, all of his Twitters all the time, or tweets, whatever they call them, all the time. And uh, very little, the kind of reporting you get now is just sort of horrendous for me. I mean, I just watch it with shock. Right. So you think think the sort of point is to get to the truth? Well, the point certainly is to write a story for the New York Times and then immediately uh, go on two or three uh, nightly uh, cable shows <laughs> talking about it. Yeah. I would have been fired if I tried to do yeah, that. Yeah, right. I know, I know what you mean. Yeah. You didn't do that. You didn't merchandise yourself that way. The story was the story, not what you did. And it's all changed and it's sort of sad to watch. I'm an old-fashioned journalist. And um, it's just sad to watch that, you know, that you, you can write anything you want and there's no facts anymore, you know. I mean, I've written stories galore, raising a lot of doubts about some of the things we take for for that Bin Laden was killed the way he was, or that the Syrians didn't use nerve gas at the time. Everybody said they did. And there's no longer any debate. The media just, they're not interested in looking into that issue. It's all been resolved. Uh, yeah. They're bad guys and that we go on. And, you know, it, nothing's that simple. But it becomes, it, it, it's reductionary, that, you know, that, that you know, that, and reporters don't seem to be that interested in looking at clip files or looking at the science involved. I'll give you a classic example. Um, uh, everybody talks, oh my God, there was a chlor- chlorine gas attack. Well, chlorine is not a chemical weapon. It's a gas. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, you smell it and you walk away. Right. It's not a weapon. Right. It's never been a weapon. Chlorine gas is just not a weapon. It, and chlorine is all over the place in places like Syria particularly in the opposition places, because chlorine is very good for cleaning bodies. And one thing in that society, in the, in the Middle East, you bury right away. Right. And there's a lot of bombing and a lot of blood. And so people get killed. It's very messy. And chlorine is a very great cleaner. You use chlorine to clean a body prepared for burial. So there's chlorine everywhere. You can't bomb a house without chlorine being right. exposed to the gas. Anyway, it's just so much more complicated. And it's also reductionary. And... um uh, I, I can't, you know, I, I hear your question, the basic question. Where did I, you know, why did I, why do I think a little differently than other reporters even back in 69 and 70 when I was chasing me line? Well, like you, Mr. Poe, um, I'll take your word for it that you were a reader. I was a reader. I grew up in a, um, a uh, immigrant family. My parents' basic language, they spoke to each other in Yiddish. They were from my father, Lithuania, and my mother from Poland. They emigrated here in the early 20s. Um, very early 20s, 20, 2021. 20, and they made a living here, and they had a family They in Chicago, and they all clustered together. They, you know, my father, I remember watching my father play soccer when I was a little boy in, in a park in Chicago. Uh, you know, the, the Lithuanians would pay the Polacks, and there'd be a lot of blood. <laughs> but I remember that. It was a very ethnic world. And um, we weren't religious. We were Jewish, but we weren't religious. And we lived in a neighborhood that was close. My father ended up after 
he had made some money, he lost money, and then the stock market crash of 38. America must have been a wonderful place in the 30s because a lot of people, a lot of their friends really lived well. Anyway, he ended up running a, a laundry and cleaning in the heart of the black ghetto in Chicago on, on a street called Indiana Avenue, 4507. Regal Cleaners was the name of the place, and I always worked there. Um, I always was, that was part of, when I was 12, 13, I was going to work there on weekends, and customers would come with checks, and I'd go fill the order and take the money and run, ring it up. And uh, I was going to help sort clothes and package them. I would do that. Um, and so I, I grew up working. And my parents, I, 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 it never was a question of, there wasn't any intellectual leadership. It came from within. Uh, when I was 13 or so, I, uh, I, I think I wrote about this in the memoir. I wrote about these early days, not just briefly. And, um, and you're right. There's an, um, you know, there's a tremendous amount of interest in my early days by a lot of people uh, because nobody knows much about it because I never talk much about it. But, um, um, I joined the book of the month club. <laughs> I was about 13 and I, every month I would get the nonfiction. It was a dollar, I think 99 cents or something like that. You send a dollar off and maybe one every three weeks would be by something, uh, one every three months. Once you guy came once a month and it would sometimes be, um, it would be, uh, some of the, um, uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover were right about the perils of communism or John Gunther would. But two out of three weeks, uh, months, there would be stuff on the, uh, the Habsburg monarchy and Chinese civilization. Right. I'm reading all this stuff because I was always a little, not bored by school, but I was always good at school. And like a lot of American kids, I mean, I live for sports too, even though I, you know, my parents didn't understand sports, but I live for sports. You know, I had a twin brother, and he was also a good athlete. We used to play in all oh, hockey in winter. Chicago was a, we had winters then. We lived in a big apartment complex, so, you know, sort of not cold water flats, but not much better than $80 a month, I think. And I had sisters in one bathroom. And uh, in the center of the courtyard was enough space for in winter by, by, by Thanksgiving. We had ice, we would pour uh, water on it, and we, had a, we played hockey. Sure, sure, yeah. And yeah. in the spring, we played baseball. In the summer, we played, you know, we played basketball. And that's what you did as kids. I had a that's the way I grew up. Life. That's exactly the way I grew well, up. Well, no, normal life. Yep. And so when, my, when I'm 15, my father gets cancer, and I'm the least afraid of him. My father's – I always think of how did my father communicate. I, I, there was a wonderful record, Mel Brooks. It's called the 2,000-year-old man. Yeah. And at one point, he's asked the question, well, how did you, 2,000 years ago, how did you travel? Uh, how, what was the mode of transportation? And Mel Brooks said, Carl Reiner was the questioner. Mel Brooks, you know, the wonderful madcap movie maker. Mel Brooks' answer was, fear. You see a lion and run. <laughs> <laughs> and so I grew up less afraid of my father. He had a quick, you know, he, he never said much to us. And he had a, used to shave with a strop, and a leather strop. I remember watching him sharpen it, and he used to spank us with that strop. Yeah. Pulled down our pants and bang us, and boy, that really hurt. And so, I, but I was least afraid, and so I could take care of him when he got sick. It went to his brain. I could take him to get a haircut. He was a dying man, and so school disappeared for me. I began working more and more in 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 the, in the store. You know, I, I began make deliveries before I got a driver's license because in those days. 
um, deliveries on Friday night and Saturday night were a third of the income, and you didn't you didn't you didn't report that. Right. <laughs> that was the way it worked in lower middle class American business. So my father didn't bank; he had a, a safety deposit box. Uh-huh. He didn't have a checking account, wow. cash in, cash out. Anyway, he wasn't a thief. He just that was that was the way it was. And actually, he was pretty straight about a lot of stuff. And so he's dying, and I'm supposed to get out of high school. And <laughs> and there were in my third year. I was always a straight A student, but my fourth year, I, everything fell apart. But I took a test, and there were three guys, two me, me, and two other guys who uh, uh, ended up with the highest score. I don't think it was a straight IQ test; it was something. And the other two, one, one went to Harvard, and the other one went to Yale. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one with a scholarship, and he came a day. He wrote me later when he got the book to say he remembered very vividly all of us. Back then, he's a now retired professor of medicine at Harvard. Anyway. The bottom line is that um, I never thought about college. So I barely scraped out of high school, you know, getting C's and D's, but I graduated. And that summer, I never thought about it. And in the fall, I ran my father's business, and my mother was there. My brother, I had a brother who um, uh, wasn't as, I was quicker. And he, he was too afraid of my father to even work in the store. And he ended, he ended up being a physicist, and he, he signed. He, he went, he went to college out of the city, and we paid for that. But that's about took most of our money. And so I ended up living at home with my mother, and and going, starting to go to a free junior college. What happened in Chicago after World War II? We're talking about 1952, 53, 54. After World War II, vets came back, and they wanted an education. But they had no money. So the University of Illinois set up a two-year community college called uh, Navy Pier. On a, it was an old pier the Navy had built in uh, right at the beginning of the war, the train um, 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 uh, navigators, you know, ship guys who could plot ship courses. And so it was a big navigation school. They turned out thousands of navigators for the Navy. It was a big deal. And so the, after the war, a couple years after the war, the University of Illinois uh, made a two-year community college there. They put money in refurbishing the old. It was just a wharf, and um, if you did well enough, you could go and just spend the, get the next two years to go downstate and get a full degree. But it was basically just a junior college, and it was free. The only thing I had to do was pay for a locker. For we had to run a track, run a track. That was an exercise. Run a try to get a. I remember get a quarter mile under a minute. 55 or 50. That's hard. I say it's hard. Even though it's in shape, it's hard. Hate it. And so I went, uh, what I would do is I would go and open up my father's store. This is when kids were going, you know, Harvard and Yale and University of Illinois and, and other schools. Uh, I went to a good high school by, uh, right near the University of Chicago, uh, Hyde Park High School. And a lot of very good, very good public school. I don't know what it's like now, but anyway. And I would go and open the store at 7, and, and people would come to work. And at, a, at about 8.30, I would drive downtown. You could park right downtown in the early 50s. And you could park right next to the, uh, the big parking lot for students and go to school. And this was early September. And about the third week, I took a course in English. And the third week, I, I remember the assignment. I got an assignment to compare a British novel and American novel, modern novel, from some young, overachieving new professor. His first job was I had to learn. And I turned in a paper, and maybe the third week of school, I'm doing what kids do, you know, walking down dank halls, not connecting with anybody, just figuring out, lost in space.
face. <laughs> and uh, at the end of class, the professor called out. He said, "Is Seymour Hershey?" And I said, "Oh crap! What have I done?" <laughs> and I walk up to I walk up to the front, the young professor, and he said, "Are you Hirsch?" And I said, "Yes." And he said, "I'll tell you." He said, "What are you doing here?" And I knew what he meant. I said, "Well, I followed that and all that because he really liked my paper." So this guy says to me. Uh, where do you live and what's going on? I told him a little bit where I live, and he said he just got his doctorate at Chicago. His name was Kogan. Um, yeah, this is Kogan. Bernard Kogan. I think he deserves to be mentioned. Yeah. Yes, I, I read about him because he and I stayed in touch forever. Yeah. But there's a connection that I'll, I'll just say you a hooker. But on it, that's just amazing how the mind works. And I met him at the University of Chicago a couple of days later. You know, nine o'clock in the morning, I cut school, and I took an admissions test. At Chicago. When Chicago starts late, that was a recorder system. It had just barely started, but maybe late September, they were just getting organized. And they, they would go quarter, quarter. It would be late September to December. They were three quarters. And so the school hadn't really started. And I was accepted right away, given money. And I placed out of a couple of history courses because I knew modern history <laughs> because of those crazy books. But I didn't do that. I didn't want to be one of those kids who did the U.S. of Chicago in three weeks. You know, they had these, these kids. And so I started there, and he saved my life in a way, and I completely forgot about this until this is literally 1983. I'm, I'm married. I've got two kids. My wife's a doc. Um, oh, we live in Washington in a house in Cleveland Park, and, you know, I've already made, I've been at the Times, and I've had my success. I'm not rich by anything else, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm, you know, I own a house, I have a car, a dog, a mortgage, like everybody. And anyway... In comes mail. I'd done a book on Kissinger that provoked a lot of mail. And, and there would, mail would be rooted from, some people would write the New York Times, some people would write the New Yorker, where I also worked then a little bit. And it would be forwarded to my home. And one day, my wife's opening the mail. And we save it. And she's going through it on the weekend. And she opens up a letter from a guy named Kogan. And it begins with, she said, oh, my God, you better read this. She didn't know the story. It begins with, you probably don't remember me. My name is Marshall. I would talk so-and-so. And... In my 20 years of teaching, or 30 or 40, I've only interviewed twice with the students and, and asked them to leave where he, where I was teaching and go someplace else. And you were one, and the other mm. one became a neurosurgeon or something. Mm. I'm so proud of you. And I remembered I had not thought about it. It was 25 years. I, I started to cry. I remembered he saved my life. Yeah. And ever since then, I know I said this in the memoir, ever since then, from 83 on, Anybody, high school teacher, grammar school teacher, mostly high school, AP English guys or AP history, AP Vietnam guys, you know, studying. Every anybody wanted me to come speak, you know, not to, not for fee. I mean, in the area, I go to yeah. tomorrow. I, I would go. Yeah. I never not. I never said no. Yeah. I mean, I give speeches for money a lot, in universities and all sure. that stuff. But this is different. Everybody, any local professor in Chicago, Washington, or or Bethesda, Maryland, or Virginia, you know, who wanted me to come talk, I would go, even if it's uh, an hour ride. Just go and do the class because, my God. Um, so, Well, I should say, just to interrupt for a second, you're very gracious in the memoir. You mentioned a lot of people like Bernard Kogan who've helped you along the way. And actually, I had a Bernard Kogan in my own life who I met when I was 18. And I'm still in touch with the guy. His name's well, Dan Kaiser. So I'm really lucky. Yeah. yeah, I'm totally, really lucky. And I often tell my students, like, the most important thing that ever happened to me was that guy picked me out. And because you really did change the course of my life. And as I say, in the memoir, you mention a lot of people like this very graciously. And it's, it's, a, it's an impressive thing. Well, it's not thing. graciously. It's just, you know, what's the sense of, of, of you know, what's the sense of, 
you know, there, there's always, you can always be ungracious. You can, uh, but uh, the truth is that Colgan helped me. Uh, later in life, there was, when I finally got a job, there was a guy at uh, the AP, I was working in South Dakota for UPI, and my competition, a guy named Dan Perks, the AP Bureau Chief, in Pierce, South Dakota, a little small, dinky place, and UPI, we were sort of sure, always, AP had teletypists. We used to type our own stories on the teletype, you know, even on news broadcast, <laughs> radio broadcast. They had, any, always AP was superior. Dan helped me get a job at AP in Chicago. He wrote a letter, I mean, I always think that has something to do with it, but I just don't know. And the, the editor at the, at the, when I worked for the, uh, uh, what happened is, what happened is, I, I got through college. Um, I, uh, I, I, I was, you know, I was obviously a good, I always knew I could write. And everybody and my friends, uh, they all thought I'd write the great American novel. Uh, because I was always pretty critical of people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, uh, in, in Chicago, in the University of Chicago in the 50s, the, the real devastating word would be if you accuse somebody of not being perceptive. Mm. <laughs> it, it, Chicago was a strange place. The, the college is small, 1,500. The graduate school is 6,000. And um, I, I ended up in a fraternity where I go and drink too much sometimes and, and, and play bridge. And the way you played bridge in, in the 50s in Chicago, was every, every, every contract was, uh, was uh, you, you, everything was did at, at, you know, at, at, at slam. <laughs> or and and uh, uh, re- and, and challenged and I mean everything was everything was an intellectual game. It was a very heady place. And I get out of there and I I wanted to get a job. Believe it or not, I I, I learned about something called Xerox. I thought it was really going to be a big field, but I couldn't get hired by Xerox. I, I had no. I was an English major, and you know, and I spent the summer working in a bar selling whiskey and. And in the fall, uh, three weeks before the University of Chicago fall started, in, uh, again in uh, early October, late September, um, I had played baseball, even though it was almost impossible to think about it. I managed to play varsity baseball for a couple of years. I sometimes couldn't travel with the team because I had to run the store. But on weekends, my brother would come down. He was at the University of Illinois. He would come down and, and run the store on Saturday so I could go play. I remember playing against... Uh, University of, of Wisconsin, and we played a doubleheader. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though we were a small college, um, uh, there were no NCAA rules until sixty uh, undergrads. In other words, for two my first two years of being in college, graduate school students could play. So we had some tremendous athletes in med school. <laughs> yeah, right. And so we could play. We yeah. could, we could, you know, we had a picture cool. that you know we could play Wisconsin and and Harvey Keene, I remember, who was later twenty years as a professional shortstop. Or the um, Milwaukee Brewers was at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, their shortstop, I've never seen a better ball player. And I remember we played a doubleheader against them, and I was shocked because between the two games, I, he went to with some friends and they had a beer and smoked a cigarette. I remember being so shocked. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the upshot is, um, I I I decided to go to law school, and I, and one of my my best colleagues was later became dean or acting dean of University of Chicago Law School. His father was a professor, and I went to see him on the last day of September, and I said, "Okay, I want to go to law school." And I got in in two days. Yeah, you know that could happen then, but I hated it, and I was a terrible student. I, I didn't like it. It was all memory, and so I got out of that. And I didn't know what I was doing, and one day in a bar, I bumped into a guy who worked at a place called City News Bureau, where you know I didn't know anything about reporting. You know, I, I, I like everybody else. I worried about Ike and the bomb and all that stuff, but I didn't know anything about. It. I read the papers a little bit. Not, I used to the New York Times. I did. I read every day for the puzzle, 
you know, you we'd all try to do the puzzle within 30 minutes. You know, it got harder during the week. I have a friend so, that still does that. Yeah, well, that's what I read the Times for. I grabbed the puzzle, and I would look at the paper. You know, I didn't like Ike and all that stuff, but I wasn't into it, you know. Um, and so I just tell you, I'm just trying to create some idea of how I got to where I was, because everything I did, I did on my own. And I, I ran into a guy in a bar that... Um, I tried to, he was flirting with a girlfriend I had gone well with, and so we were joking about it, and he was a, he just joined Time Magazine, and he he'd, uh, was going to join, I don't remember which, and he was at City News, the news agency in Chicago that had been set up in the 1920s in the, the era of Dillinger and crime and all that stuff, and there was so much crime and so much court stuff that the four major papers and the wire services and the radio stations got together and funded a news agency that would cover the courts and the police stations. And it was half the people who were hired there came from the Dill School of Journalism. The other half, all you had to need was a BA. And so what I remember vividly is going down and applying. Fill out a form and disappeared. Months later, I moved. Meanwhile, the phone number I gave, no cell phones, and I gave the phone number of the apartment. And I moved. And one night about... Oh, three, five months later, nobody called me back. I, you know, I forgot about it. I was still selling booze in a Walgreens, still figuring out what I'm going to do. I was trying to save money. I was maybe it's got a nice a image. I had, no, well, I had no money. Dollar fifteen hour. Yeah. And um, I lived in a, but it was. You can imagine after what my deal with my brother was. I would take care of my mother for four years, and then he would go to Illinois, University of Illinois, downstate, and he got a job in electric, and he got a electric a degree in electrical engineering. He was always interested in wave theory. And he got a doctorate in mm-hmm. physics in California. He goes to California, gets a job, and he takes my mother. That's the deal. He got married, and they set up an apartment for her. So suddenly, I'm free of taking care of my mother. My brother's doing it. He honored our commitment. I did it for four years. And I'm living in a $12 a week room in a basement in some boarding room. The bathroom's down the hall with big water bugs. And I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. Yeah. I'm free. Right. And I go to law school, and I hated that, but, you know, I, I had a girl, it didn't matter, I, I had a life, I felt like I was becoming, I always read, you know, but I felt like I, I was, be, I could get, anyway, it was all self-starting, and so I applied for the job, and one night, I, I this was out of a bad movie, I went to play poker at my old apartment, I moved, it's the time I, I signed up at City News, I went to play poker with a bunch of guys who knew what they were doing, table stakes, pot limits. You know, you bring a hundred dollars, you lose it in ten minutes. Anyway, I was quickly wiped out. You know, I'm the worst poker player in the world. I learned that in the army too. I went in the army later, and um, so it was about three o'clock by the time I got tapped out. So I went to sleep on a couch in in the old apartment where I lived. There was a couch in the back room, and then the phone rang in the morning. Nobody answered it, and I finally picked it up on the fifth ring, and somebody said, uh, "This is Ryberg of City News, the editor." He said, "Are you Hirsch? Looking for Hirsch?" I said, "I'm Hirsch." He said, "Well." Your name's come up. Come on down. Let's talk about going to work. Wow. And that's how I got the job. Yeah. My, I mean, what was I doing there that day? You know, what karma? I go down there and, yeah, man, that's and cool. they hire me, 35 bucks a month, a week rather, and I become a copy boy of City News and I'm, I fell in love. Oh, it could have just, been different. Yep. Everything could be different, but yeah. it was just amazing. I fell in love and I had a tough editor who rode my, my ass hard. I named Bob can I, can, I, can I interrupt you to ask a question? Because I yeah. just found this fascinating. Uh, you were a copy boy. You bet. What is a copy boy? <laughs> what do they do? Do they, they still exist? 
uh, they don't exist anymore because it's also computerized. At that time, the Chicago, the, the way it worked is we had pneumatic tubes to every station. We had a pneumatic tube, a tube that went by a power pressure right. tube. It went across the city to all the newspapers and all the radio stations and everybody else who subscribed. We, they, we had subscribers. You know, they would pay a certain amount for our service. And we covered every crime. And so we covered every crime, small or otherwise, and the editors would look at what we report and decide whether they want to send a reporter to cover it. Yeah. Okay, and same with fires. And so for months I was begging to get out. I, I didn't, and the way we did it, every, uh, you, you wrote us, you, you, you called the reporters would call in the story. You had rewrite guys who type it up on, on, a, on a, a, a form that I could then attach to a, a, uh, uh, a machine that cranked out, uh, copies. It was a, like a mimeograph machine. Yeah, only it was sure. a little different. It dark blue ink. I remember I was diffused with blue ink every night. And I would put this, I would put the story on a little, attach it to a little press and crank out a hundred copies that we would then send, put in the matic tubes and send to every station. And Copy that's boy. the job. Yeah, got yeah, it. A lot of work. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of work. And the other thing in the morning, I worked the night shift. The, I had a, the last thing I had to do between 6.30 and 7 with a special, a, a, a special uh, a soap, clean the day city editor's desk in such a way he was fanatic about dirt. He would come in. And his name was Larry Millay. He would come in and sit down exactly at seven, and then start running his hands over the desk. And as I wrote in my uh, in that before, I mean, it was I, I always had fun writing this stuff. I could have won three Pulitzer prizes the night before, and if I left a smear on his <laughs> yeah, desk, I'd be fired. Yeah. I remember I'd be fired that. If there yeah. was one piece of That's dirt. Funny. Yeah. So anyway, so I did that, and there was a guy named Bob Billings who had been a football player at Illinois, big tough guy, and he's always. He was really brilliant, but he tried to hide it. He was a, 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 a Joyce scholar. He talked Joyce later in life. He talked mm. Joyce. But, you know, I, didn't, I knew there was something there, but he was edgy about me. I was smart, obviously. And, I, you know, I was a, I was a, uh, 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 I had played ball, and, you know, I, was, I wasn't big. I mean, I was 5'11". You know, I'm bigger than I am now. You lose almost six feet. And I was, you know, a nice-appearing guy, and I had a lot of lip. And, and every day I would bring a book. And he used to ride my ass. You know, I, it, one of the things you had to do is at some point go out and get coffees. And I, I'd get coffees and sandwiches. And he'd come back and he'd say, you're the dumbest fucking Jew I've ever seen. You can't get a, you can't get a coffee order straight. I wanted cream and you got me milk. And so, but then he'd come back later. He said, what are you reading? He'd say, and I said, so-and-so. He said, what do you want to read that junk for? He said, you know, of course, of course, he was, I was reading novels. I was reading, you know, Saul Bellow and. And uh, I was reading all the novels. The, you know, William Styron was beginning to write that. I was in love with these guys and copying all the words, vocabulary. And, and uh, you know, Augie Marsh had been published. It was a novel by Saul Bellow about a, a Chicago boy that wasn't making it. And that was me. Yeah. You know, I, I could relate to it. And so uh, it turns out I'm a good, I was a good golfer, too. I picked up golf. Somehow. He liked golf, and we started playing golf. And he eventually got me on the street. And so I became a street reporter in Chicago, you know, at the age of 22, 23. I was so happy. I'm covering downtown police, midnight to eight shift, and cops are okay. You know, I'm not even a great fan of cops. Chicago cops are pretty, you know, you didn't mess around with the cops. But they, midnight, about two or three in the morning, if they scored some good Mary Jane, you know, one of the cops, young cops would come back, and only two or three of us reporters, and we'd all share the joint, which you called marijuana back then, Mary Jane. We smoke a joint, and sometimes we look at dirty films. They complicated, you know, eight, eight millimeter porn. Mm-hmm. And I had the cops would share with us, but also, you know, one night I learned a lot being a police reporter. One night, I'm in 
covering downtown police. I'm always on. I'm listening to radio, and there are two cops down about two miles away, and I an old Studebaker. I get in my old car, and I get. It's winter. It's cold as hell. I get out there, and I get to the scene, and there are two federal postal inspectors that have been ambushed, and they're, they're the car. They've been shot to death, and the car hit a pole on Roosevelt Road, about a mile south of uh, downtown Chicago. And I'm there. I'm the only reporter there, which is good, because then my story is going to be on the desk of every newspaper, and they're going to have to sign somebody. Right. Or if, if they want to make the first edition, you know, the last morning edition, they have to use the city news story, which happens occasionally. We like that. Uh, they tended not to want to use our stories, but you know, they would. They buy city news anyway. Um, and so I remember that looking at these two guys, bullets all over, blood all over, and I go up to the sergeant and charge. <laughs> I have my press pass from City News. I guess these two of the corridors, so, you know, they, they had rings of uh, cops blocking people. But I get through and I go up to the sergeant in charge, who, of course, is in a fucking rage because uh, a fellow cop is down. And I say, um, uh, Sarge, City News, are they dead? And he looked at me and he grabbed me. And I remember I had a coat on. And he threw me as hard as you could throw anybody. It's a big guy, big Irish cop, against the car, parked car. And he said, not to little pronounce. You know, he called me any one of six different swear words. And so I had a big dilemma. Do I call in they're dead or do I wait for the coroner? So I waited 15 minutes for the coroner and he said they're dead and I called it in. So I learned something. I learned a lot. Not so bad to wait. Yeah. Uh, not, a couple of weeks later, I'm on the south side covering night shift. The Hyde Park District where I used to live. And I'm enjoying that. And what you do with the cops in Chicago, Irish, the Irish controlled the cops. And a lot of cops were cops because they had to be third generation, and some of them were just amazingly brilliant. You talk about New York Times. There were guys there who did the London Times acrostic. And so you go, you go and you make nice to the, the, the sergeant running this desk. You buy him a coffee, and then you wait around, and he'd call you and say, we got something interesting going on, and so-and-so, and he'd tip you off about a fire. So I dashed out to a fire in the ghetto, close to my where my father's, uh, we, when, when, when I graduated from college, we sold our store store that we hung on to, but only because we were frightened peasants. We could have sold it for a reasonable, made a living, but we hung on to it, and, you know, business got slower and slower, but we ended up giving it to the employees, and they kept it going. Yeah. But, you know, we could have sold it, but we didn't know what else to do. We just hung on to what you have. Real ghetto people, you know what I mean? We're, my mother mm-hmm. could have gotten a job. I could have worked part-time. We didn't have to keep me working at this store, you know, which is it was all crazy, but that's the way it was. You didn't change it. And you can understand why people, you know, uh, didn't change before the Holocaust because that's the way they've done it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I learned something then. But when I get out to some place where there's, you know, some guy has gone nuts in the black community, shot his wife and a bunch of kids. When I get there, the, the fire department has put the fire, started a fire, burned to death. They all burned too. And uh, they were all wrapped up in Papa Bear, Mama Bear, and three or four little bears. And I remember being just horrified. What a story. And I, you know, the cops didn't know much about it, but a neighbor told me who they were. There'd been some domestic stuff. And, and I got enough so I could call in a bulletin. I remember a guy named Casey Buckwell, who later became the environmental editor of the Chicago Tribune, a wonderful, old, wonderful, great old reporter, became a wonderful reporter in Chicago. Uh, that's what we had at City News. Michael, Mike Royko, the great columnist, worked there. I used to play golf with him and um, uh, thank himself to death, though. But anyway... Um, and so I, I would call in this story, and I'm just horrified. You know, there's six people dead, you know, and, and I'm dictating this story to Casey. I think it was Casey. He used to call up and say, get me rewrite. And uh, I, I, I didn't, you just dictate it. 
And the next city editor, a guy named Dornfeld, who I hated because he lived in the country and he used to wear boots to work and he would put them all night on Larry Malay's desk. <laughs> yeah, right. Son of a bitch. I had yeah. to clean his boots up, you know, his counters and whatever it was. Anyway, he gets on the phone with me. They had a comm system and he said, ah, my good, dear, energetic Mr. Hirsch, he said. I said, yes, sir, Mr. Dornfeld. He said that the victims, the last poor victim of, of the, uh, the words that was really like this, give or take a phrase, were the last poor unfortunate of victims of, um, uh, of, uh, uh, of, uh, of the Negro, or were they of, of the Negro community, of the Negro persuasion, of Negro persuasion? I said, yes, sir. He said, chief it out. And city news that meant you saw what you filed is six people died in the fire in southwest Chicago today. Mm-hmm. And I got a lesson in racism. I thought I knew something about racing, working, you know, growing up, working in a black community and knowing the, you know, the troubles there. I got a lesson that was really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. That was, this is all in four, five, six months working. And then I had to go in the army. Um, uh, I was going to be drafted and I wanted to beat the draft. So I got into a, a six month reserve. I had to go take that slot. So I know I had to leave in a couple of months, but right before I left, I saw something. The third thing, it was a great thing to learn about the persistence of racism. The third thing I saw that was just amazing as a kid reporter, and these all are the kind of things that sort of toughen you up because you you see you see it from the inside. I was there. I mean, it happened. And uh, one night, two cops called in. They they arrested a, a perp. And he tried to flee, and they had to they chased him, and they ended up at a shootout. He's dead. And they were they were coming in, and the ambulance had taken him away, and they were going to come in and file. And uh, it was on the radio, so I didn't wait for them to cut to come in. I went down to the garage where they I wanted to interview the one of the cops before he got before he debriefed. I wasn't suspicious. I just wanted to. That was me, you know, four in the morning. I just went down right. there to you know, and he gets in, and I'm walking towards the car. It's dark in the garage. It's the, the the main police headquarters was about a five story building. The 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 basement was a garage for the police car. And uh, I, I, he doesn't see me, and he, these two Irish cops, and they were Irish, you know, Chicago cops were largely Irish, and, and um, they get out, one says, what, another buddy in another squad car obviously overheard the call, and he said, hey, Mick, so the, the son of a bitch um, uh, uh, tried to run on you. And he said, no, nah, no, nah. he said, I told the nigger to beat it, and then plug him. Mm-hmm. I heard it, right? Yep. I'm froze. I go, immediately leave. I go back. And I called the desk guy. I said, oh, my God, cops just shot a black guy. And it's the, the desk guy, doesn't matter who he is, says, so what? He said, what do you mean? I said, I just heard a cop talk about it. He said, it's your word against his. He said, let it go. Don't touch it. Mm-hmm. I said, what are you talking about? He said, it, it, you, know, you want to stay in this job? You want to stay in downtown police? You make a, make a fuss about this, you're going to have to leave the station and maybe even leave the goddamn city news. Mm-hmm. And I said, come on. So I, I hung up and I waited a couple of days and looked at the coroner's report. The bullets were in the back. I went downtown to look at the coroner. And I called that in. And so I was leaving in a couple of weeks and I remember thinking, oh my God, I love this profession, but it is not perfect. Mm-hmm. There's self, self-censorship really exists big time. And not only that, me too. I went along with it. There was nothing heroic about me, so I knew right. that going in. And you have to understand something else, which is that in 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 Chicago, um, uh, 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 the cops just there was a deal with the mob. You could do anything you wanted in Chicago as a cop, police reporter. If you said city news, you could park your car on the sidewalk downtown. There was a, a, a street called Rush Street, 
where the the mob, the the the, the, the Giancana syndicate controlled Rush Street. They're all the bars and, and honky tonks. Um, uh, uh, Lenny Roos used to play there, you know, in Mr. Kelly's. And if if some guy, if some mob guy is uh, found in the gutter in Rush Street at four in the morning with fifty bullet holes in his back. And it's reported as a traffic accident. You did not screw around with it. Yeah, I knew that. But I I also knew that my my period there in Chicago was exciting because I was in a tyranny too. I understood tyranny. It was a police tyranny in a way. The cops got cleaned up later. Uh, old man uh, Orlando Wilson came in a couple of years later. I remember writing about it when I went back to Chicago for the AP. What I did know was a tyranny. I really had a great experience as a police reporter. I understood something about how big cities work. I understood about racism. I understood about waiting an hour. I understood that it's not always a heroic business. Mm-hmm. And these are all very important things to learn. And so they helped me. But also I understood that there was nothing more, you know, being 16, running your father's business, and it's Christmas, and it's snowing, and it's 7 o'clock at night, and you've got $700 in your pocket, and, you know, God knows what's out there in the street. You know, it's been a busy day, Christmas Day. You know, you, everybody wants their cleaning. You do some business then. That's when we made our money in the holidays mostly. And, you know, I'm closing up and there's gates and, you know, anybody can come and whack me. I knew that too. Yeah. Or, you know, same. So I'd gone through all that. And, you know, not that it was heroic, but I had survived all that. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know, I, I got to tell you, um, some three-star general will come up to me and say, you know, why'd you write that story about Milan? You know, what the hell? And I, I would say, you know, I said it to one guy who went after me, and I said, sir, I'm every, you know, I know you got those stars, but I'm every bit of American as you are. Yeah. And so I always understood that. So I wasn't cowed by that. Mm-hmm. I'd gone through all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's interesting. You're the first person, Mr. Poe, to talk to me about the early days. But that's all formative. I was pretty much on my own. I wasn't wild. I mean, I always took care of my mother. You know, and but I had time to play baseball and have a girlfriend, and we get drunk on Friday night. She would watch TV. You know, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. Yeah, yeah. You know, she was from the old country, and she you know, she didn't know better. And when she went to California, didn't you think she ended up getting a job working as in a cleaning store, taking care of a, of a store, and she made a living? Yeah, for herself and got an apartment with a roommate. It was better for her too. Instead yeah. of hanging on to what we had. Yeah, right. But the instinct was when my father died to hang on. And they knew that was wrong too. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so there you are. Well, I, I want to. Those... I guess what I was going to say is, is that, you know, your tenaciousness and actually also your inventiveness was even apparent at this moment because you're always doing things on the side. And you might talk a little bit about that. It wasn't just. What do you mean you, by that? Well, the thing about it was, that? you weren't just doing what you were told. You were also investigating other things. And this happens after you go into the army, and then when you start, you know, for example, you started a newspaper, Evergreen Oakland Dispatch. Uh, you were well, an ambitious guy. Got, yeah, I mean, I just I kind got of out of the, get I went to, yeah. the army, and I spent my six months. I learned to shoot a gun. I learned to, uh, I could take apart a machine gun, I guess, blindfolded and all that stuff. And I learned a lot in the army. Um, uh, uh, I was in a basic training unit, and uh, uh, in, in the Ozarks, it was very hot. And the, the thing you waited for the most is after five weeks, you could have a Friday night off, and you could do two things. You could get to a motel and, and take a shower by yourself and go to the bathroom by yourself. <laughs> yeah, right. You could also buy, uh, outside the gates, all the local farmers were selling, you know, their local hooch. Yeah. Corn whiskey, you know, and so you could get, you could get, you know, 
stoned and lying drunk on cheap whiskey that right. you're buying for the farmers. Right. And feel like a human being again a little bit. Anyway, um, 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 but I actually, uh, uh, the irony is that uh, basic training, <laughs> I'll tell you what the Army is, the conundrum of the Army. I was at a big base, Fort Leonard Wood. They had a baseball team, a division. It was a division team in those days. It was pre-Vietnam. The Korean War was over, and the big thing was uh, Division One would play division. The first division would play the second division. Yeah. The general in charge was always wondering. And they had a baseball team, and they had tryouts for baseball. And I made the team in basic training, which made no sense huh. because I was going to be shipped out after basic training to another place. You know what I mean? I was, yep. I was, it was, it was two months, ten weeks or so of basic training, and so in the fifth week I made the team, and so I would go practice with the team every day in the afternoon, and my my other guys didn't like me very much because I'd go back on the chow truck instead of marching back twenty right. miles, you know, ten miles, and by the time they came back, I was you know dead asleep, exhausted from picking up ground balls, as I say, mm-hmm. or whatever, and so, and then after ten another five weeks, I was shipped out to another base, so I never got to play. So why would the army let somebody in basic training make the team when there's no way he was going to? It just, I began to figure out the army. <laughs> well, it's funny you mention this because my father was in the army and he would be about your age if he were alive. And uh, he never really spoke very well of the army. I mean, and, and even as someone who made it, uh, you know, he was a captain when he retired. But he was, for him, the army was a situation normal, all fucked up. Uh, that was the, his, it changed very much well, today. People don't think of the army that way anymore. No, but he did. professional it's a yeah. professional army now. Then it was volunteers, and it was just, you just did it. I did it. It was a good learning experience. You know, I had I had been such a cloistered life. You know, I, I was now living with a bunch of guys. You know, there were guys there from the Deep South. Uh, there were some Cajuns from Louisiana who wouldn't take showers. We'd have to give them a <laughs> GI shower. We have to pull them, pull, them out of, pull them out of there. They come in from the field. We come in, you know, it was August, and you're in basic training. You'd come in, and you'd just... Go into the shower and strip in the shower and wash with soap as you took off each piece of clothing, you know, your shirt, your pants, your socks, your underwear, and wash them there and just try and get clean and then hang them out. There was hangers outside. They dry in an hour. so hot and warm. And so, and these guys wouldn't shower. So we'd have to, well, every few days, have to grab them and give them, force them to have showers. And they all be talking about coming back later in life with their big brother and knife us to death. They were going to kill us all. You know, with guys, they spoke Cajun. I saw all sorts of different people, and I learned to watch my mouth. You know, I'm a bit of a smart ass, but I could always do 50, you know, 50 push-ups or something. Yeah, I was always in good shape. And so anyway, I got through that, and, and then I went, came back, and I looked for a job. I'd been working at City News, and City News, I did a terrible thing at City News. I, I insulted, when I left, I insulted the sports editor, and... And he said, when I came back, everybody who went in the Army got a job back at City News. He's, he would quit if I came back. Uh, there's, in the City News, is if you're on a beat, and if I, let's say, I'm covering Central Police and I miss something, it's in the papers and I hadn't reported it, I'd, I'd get a demerit. There was a scoop sheet. And on Friday nights, the sports editor used to drag me to take basketball scores. I spent two hours taking 800 basketball scores from downstate and everywhere. I hated it. And he, because I hated it the most, and was most vocal about it, he made me do it. And so the last day I was there, I went and bought all the British papers. And I took out about 50 clips of um, football, soccer football, yeah. and uh, look, not, and um, 
uh, what, what are the other uh, uh, Australian football yep. and uh, and the other game where they where they where they bowl the ball with the cricket. Mm-hmm. And I bought, I took twenty stories and I clipped them up and I scooped them on twenty stories from Europe. <laughs> so when he came in that morning, it was a scoop sheet all full of him. Yeah, and he was so mad at me I couldn't get back. So I finally got a job at a, at a local newspaper in, in the South Side of Chicago. And so um, and um, and so I finally uh, did that and. Uh, and it turned out the paper was a shill. It was owned by a bigger newspaper in the area who wanted to make sure no competition came in. It was a terrible newspaper, but I was the only reporter and editor. So I would I could report City Hall at a place called Evergreen Park, Oakland, suburb of Chicago. Uh, Kaczynski, the mad bomber, out of Evergreen Park. Yeah. I can understand why. <laughs> but anyway, the, the, no, it's okay. But the point is that I learned how to do offset, write stories, edit them. And then Billings, my the, the fellow from City News, where I used to play golf with, I had some money, and he said, why don't we start a real newspaper here? I've got money. And I quit that place, and I did. And I started a paper with Billings, and it was a great paper. We started a paper. Mike Royko used to write for it. Other guys at City News would come and write for it. We really covered the city. We're critical. We had about 15,000, 18,000 subscribers, you know, just to live. We drop off papers to kids. You know, we had in two, two suburbs. Yeah, but we gave them news, and within about a month or two, we began to get national advertising for cars and other things. And so, by this started in the spring, and by the summer, we were, you know, we were had one ads that it was going, and we were it was a good paper. But my God, I didn't want to be the publisher of a paper. I was selling ads. Right. Well, I did. I wanted to comment about that because that is part. It's part of the most entertaining. I think an entertaining part of the memoir is is the is the passages where you describe selling ads, because it's really very. You know, look, you got to make the business run. I mean, those people uh, they bring in the money. (laughs) You know, we we would print about eighteen thousand copies, and and we had a truck that would go print. And if I didn't give him, it was about 600 bucks cash. If yeah. I didn't have 600 bucks every Wednesday night to pick up those copies, the kid who picked up the copies and dropped them off. And sometimes if he was sick, I would do it. You know, we, we had a truck, we ran it right. and drop off the papers. And so if uh, we had a guy named Baker who gave us a promise, a full page ad every day. And if he wanted to, I probably would have put it on page one if he paid enough. <laughs> Oh, you know, some, some publications do that now. So it's well, not, you, you were ahead of your time. <laughs> well, you, 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 I just understood being a publisher. I was, right. you know, and yeah. we we had I had four people work for us. One was one 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 old friend from Chicago that helped sell ads, and you know, and so, and we had a we we had other people writing stories. You know, Mike Royko came and wrote some stories about you know about Evergreen Park and suburbs, and so we. It was, you know, in the book is a photograph of me and Billings and uh, a guy named Paul Zimbrockus, another guy from City News, who would come and help us. Our first edition, and you know, and and that was a, the the headline in the first edition, uh, our founding edition. You know, we were yeah. so full of ourselves, yeah. but we did something. The first edition yeah. had to come over over Christmas, yeah. and they over early early in the year when schools were just turning over. And I had a wonderful friend who was a great photographer, and we turned them loose on kindergarten. And the first day of kindergarten, kids walking in with their mother and fathers and being nervous of being in class. My friend, Ron Engelberg, was a great photographer. He took a hundred pictures, and we, we made sure somebody went with him and got the names of everybody. And the first edition, in the centerfold, it was a tabloid, but in the middle of the page, maybe it was a 26 page or 28 page, in the middle of the 14, 15 spread. Two whole pages of kids going to starting um, kindergarten 
with the name of the kid and his mother there uh-huh. or his grandmother. Yeah. And uh, that was a way to start. I mean, we knew how to do it. Yeah, that was a, that, but, that I, works, but I woke yeah. up one day in the summer and I said, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And I told Billings, I got to go. I couldn't do this. I didn't right. want to do it. I, w- I want to be in the world. And he got mad because I was the driving force. Yep. And uh, and I left. And he folded the paper. He was silly. Mm. He could have kept it going. He just he waited a couple of weeks. But he was mad at me after yeah. forever. Yeah. Yeah. But I went. I went to California. Played golf for a little while. Tried to get a job in the L.A. Times. Couldn't get one. And came back. And by sheer luck, uh, by sheer luck, um, I uh, I called up somebody at UPI, a guy named Gene Gillette, who was a lovely man. He was the regional editor. And I went to see him. And I don't know. My guess is somebody at City News. Did some good things to me because at that point my track record was I slumped out of law school. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Newspaper that I yeah, quit. Right, I left true. the newspaper in the middle of it. Doesn't look uh, good. I've been fired by City News, the only guy that couldn't come back to City News. Yeah. And so what? What record did I have? But he, I went to see him, and he hired me to work as a as a number two guy in a bureau in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to. Yeah. You know, I know we've taken up a lot of your time, and I, I want to get in a couple more questions if that's okay. Okay. Just yeah. So more. these are just a few more. And so one of them is about uh, when you we're going to skip a little bit, and when you actually make it to D.C. and you start to work in the Pentagon and talk to people at the Pentagon, you have some very interesting and revealing things to say about the press corps at that time. I mean, I don't want to characterize it for you, but it, it just seems like they were in the pocket of the military. Well, you know what I did in that because I cover, I got to cover the Pentagon. What happened is I worked at UPI and did fine, and AP hired me in Chicago. Yeah, and in Chicago I had a ball. And they the, the great thing they, 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 the 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 city editor there couldn't have been more different than I. He's a wonderful city editor. He was a very devout Catholic and a brilliant brilliant guy. And um, he disagreed with me on things, but he he really did appreciate um, my abilities and. So I eventually was given the job of going to work at five in the afternoon or four in the afternoon doing the night shift, and I didn't have to sit at a desk. I did things like I got to Chicago for the AP, and I was assigned to do radio, write the radio wire. You know, the way it works is the national wire the AP has for all the radio stations, including the network. And there's about twice a day for about eight, ten minutes, and a half hour and the hour. There would be a local split, and I would then, as a radio guy, I would then. I, I didn't have to. I didn't have to type it like I did at UPI. We had a typist. I would then write copy for the radio for five minute splits twice a day. Right. You know, that's twice an hour, and that, that was a job. And I would sometimes change things and juice it up a little bit. And they eventually, uh, you know, I had a little, just a little flash, and they eventually put me on the desk where I was night reporting. We 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 could rewrite anything in the Chicago papers and. I'd like to get out, but it, sometimes I would just be, uh, I would do things like, I wrote about this, uh, uh, the, 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 the Lincoln Park Zoo had a, a famous gorilla named Sinbad, and one night he got out, he got loose, somebody left the door open, and instead of running through crazy, he went right into the, uh, the dining hall, where he gone down and, <laughs> right. and and also had a beer, opened up some beer, mm. and smashed some cans, and it, made a, it was a big spread in the paper. And so we then had to write a wire story about it, pick it up. And most guys would just write, uh, you know, we, we could just, we could make it AP. We didn't have to say Chicago. We, that we had the copyright to the, the Chicago Daily News and the Tribune, the four papers subscribed to us. And they, we had the right to take their stories and rewrite them as AP stories. That's how the Sun Times said today. They just say, you know, just use their material. And so I took it and I would just, I remember the Sinbad. I said, uh, Sinbad, something like Sinbad the Gorilla, uh, uh, was 
prisoner seeking a hangover, just like any other guy that had a night on the town. Yeah. Right? And so that story would go on the wire, and all of a sudden, I did stuff like that, uh, two or three pieces like that, and, and it was getting tremendous play. I'd be off lead in the Herald Tribune in Chicago, and New York, rather. People would like those, you know, 500-word little feature on page one. And the, the guy that ran the night wire sent a message, who's writing this stuff? And they said, well, a kid named her. She said, put his name on the story. Yeah. And then he said, eventually he said, let this guy go. And I, my job was to write a story every day. Let's go to, and for about six, eight months I did it. And finally, they promoted me to Washington. And I learned later that Carol Ehrman, the Day City editor, who, you know, was a big, you know, he was much more conservative than I was. He's the one who pushed me to go to New York, to Washington. He wrote a letter of recommendation saying That's this kid's got yeah. it. And so I was in Washington for a little while. I got sent to the Pentagon. But I had been reading about the war incessantly since 62. I find the New York Times every day reading Neil Sheehan, uh, David Halberstam. Sheehan was UPI. Mel Brown was AP. Halberstam was, um, was New York Times. There were other guys at the New York Times, wonderful correspondents who were there even before David, who were skeptical about the war. And then they began to read Bernard Fall. So when I get to the Pentagon, I'm already knowing. I also read the various Christian, um, not the Catholic Church, but Protestant Church, had put out book pamphlets describing the perils of the war and collecting all the negative stories around the world because a lot of foreign press were reporting bad stuff that we weren't. Right. About the killing and murder that was going on. I also read the Russell Tribunal, which has some great stuff in it. So I, when I got to the Pentagon, I began to talk to officers, junior officers that come back. You know, the Pentagon's full of the bright... They go and do six months or a year in Vietnam, and they come back, and they be on some uh, aide to a senior general. But they go have lunch like anybody else. And it's, I just sit down with a guy and say, I'm a kid reporter here from Washington, you know, the AP. What's it like? And let me tell you what I thought about the war. And I got to know people, you know, and I had information. And so they were you find smart guys, and they eventually began to say how screwed up the war was and how murderous it was and how awful it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I... I learned a lot, and I got in trouble in the Pentagon, and I, what I couldn't believe how supine the press corps was. Yeah, this is the part I'm interested in right here, which I just but, but, found what I did bizarre. In the book, what I did in the book is Len Downey, who later who was a young reporter then for the Chicago uh, for the Washington Post, later became the managing executive editor. Len Downey and I met the first day I started was the first day he started. So Len, 20 years later, writes a book about investigative reporting with a chapter on me, and he describes how he saw the Pentagon press office, which is the same way I did. Uh -huh. So I used his description. They would just sit there. The way it worked in the Pentagon in those days, if you saw a general or an admiral for a story you had to sign in, that meant if you had a story that was critical and some admiral helped you, you had to spend two or three days talking to six or seven other admirals and generals to muddy them. They were keeping track of us. Uh -huh. So the reporters didn't fight that system. They did, and every day they had a briefing. Some general would give a briefing, and they report the briefing and write a story about it. And I couldn't believe what was going on. Yeah. So I just yeah. didn't do that. Yeah. I did my own thing. I got in a lot of trouble. McNamara wanted to fire me. They were all against me. But I began to report good stuff. And I write about how, of all people, Neil Sheehan came back from the war to cover the, 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 the Pentagon for the New York Times. And he and I became friends because he was a great reporter. He couldn't understand what was going on, too. And twice I wrote stories that they about they were lying about bombing up North Vietnam. And yeah. twice I was going to get fired. But Neil Sheehan took my story and told the New York Times to run it on page one. And they did with the AP byline. That never happened. Yeah. Neil did that twice. And he kept me and kept my job. So we stayed, stayed friends all of our lives.
Yeah, I just found that just pretty supine is a good word for it. I just found it kind of remarkable at the time. Well, and how, yeah. I found it, was, but that's the way it was. Then the war was nobody. Nobody. There was. It was there. The melee was there to yeah. be reported. So I learned two years later. I get the tip. I knew it was true. I knew there was something like this had to happen. Yeah. I didn't know how bad it was when I started. Right. Right, right. That's, and there you go. Thank you very much for your time, Sai. I really, really appreciate it. You've taken up an hour with us. That's just very generous of you. Well, uh, I, w- I was intrigued by your book. Thank Goodbye, you. Bye, my friend. All right, take care. Bye-bye.